there's a data point and I'm sure you can find this, but you know, you go back to like 1970s, everyone likes to say like, oh, when I went to college in the 70s, it was like $1,200. Well, when you also went to college in 1970, 95% of all colleges were public or nonprofit. Fast forward to today, and I believe it's 60%. This is numbers, not necessarily enrollment, but the number of schools, because a lot of these certificates are very small schools, like a cosmetology school or something is like 10 people at a time, right? But over 60% of the number of schools now are private for-profit schools in this country. And why? Yes. So by sheer number, not necessarily by enrollment, by enrollment, still two thirds to 75% of all students are enrolled in public or nonprofit schools. But the sheer number, like if you want to count like each cosmetology school and barbershop and trade school that are getting financial aid, 60 to 65% of them are private for-profit schools. Why? Well, there's a business opportunity there. Why is there a business opportunity there? Well, because these are technically graduate schools. Graduate schools don't have a cap on lending. They can charge whatever they want. They know their students can pay whatever it is because the federal government will give them these loans. Here we go. We're back to that graduate school problem of no caps on lending. And that's why it's, it should be a crime for some of these, you know, and and sadly I keep singling out cosmetology and barbershops, but financial aid, the financial aid program puts out a list of schools that have the highest default rates. And they put this out every year. Uh, Here's the schools. They already know the data. They know where students can't afford to pay their student loan debt. And they put this list out and like, I want to say 18 of the top 20 schools are all barbershops and cosmetology schools. And these poor students are, they have to get this school because we have state laws that require you, right, to get a little certificate, which you could say is maybe necessary, maybe not. I don't, I'm not really versed in that, but it's required. And so these cosmetology and barbershops take advantage of those students. And they know because they have to have this certificate, they can charge whatever they want. And they know that their students can pay for whatever the cost is. Here we go. They can get the loan. Right. And so I will tell you that the argument against caps on borrowing is that it could disenfranchise people from school, right? It could just disproportionately affect minority, first generation, college students, things like that. And they're right. But those same people are also being preyed on by these programs because it's like, okay, they don't go to college because they don't go to this cosmetology school that now is also going to screw them. Like, yeah, yeah, they didn't go to college and they didn't get the student loan. But at the same time, we also might've saved the moral hazard issue of like going to this school that they shouldn't have gone to to begin with. Welcome to Michelle is Money Hungry, a podcast focused on having real and empathetic conversations about the intersection of money, policy, and politics. In my view, personal finance and money isn't about working hard. I'm spending the entire summer, in fact, talking about the potential for student loan forgiveness, the cost of education, and is this policy an overreach or is it necessary? With inflation rising and millions of students about to have their loans come out of being paused due to financial policy enacted during the COVID pandemic, this student loan forgiveness policy is living rent-free in my mind. What will happen if student loan forgiveness actually happens? And what will happen if the administration decides to move away from it as a policy? My guests and I will talk about everything that gets lost in the noise of politics, tweets, and everything in between. Is college really a part of the American dream? And is the cost of college a problem? For those of you who don't know, I used to have a ton, (laughs) a ton of unsecured debt. 
It took almost eight years to pay off over $60,000 in every kind of debt you could imagine, partly because it was really complicated. I had small loans from friends. I had payday loans. I had like just all these little debts and they were complicated. I don't even want to talk about my student loans. That's why I'm actually doing this series. As a result of my debt experience, I was super skittish about ever getting another credit card. I hate to admit that when I finally decided to sign up for my first card in years, I actually chose badly. I hate this new credit card and I wish I had known about cash freely when making this decision. What I love about this free tool is the following. It helps credit card users stay organized when using different cashback rewards programs and deciding on the different cashback rewards cards you may be interested in. I would have gone through the information cash freely shares and I would have made a much more informed decision. Unfortunately, I didn't know about it. You don't have to worry about leaving cash on the table, pun intended. Cash freely helps credit card users optimize the different cashback rewards programs that may be a part of the current cards you're using or future cards that you may be considering. And just maybe that extra can be applied as an additional payment on your student loan, yeah, I went there, or towards a trip or something else that you would like to use that extra money for. Again, this is a free app, or you can use the website because it has a website as well, and I think you should check it out. Click on the link in my show notes for more information and to give it a try. I'm Robert Farrington, and I'm the founder of The College Investor, and I love talking to people about getting out of student loan debt as early as possible so that they can start building wealth for the future. How did you even get into creating this business, this website? Honestly, unintentionally, right? So I wanted to talk a lot about investing and side hustles and earning money. And that was my path through college. I was side hustling. I was taking my extra money. I was investing it. But, uh, you know, a lot of my friends were like, hey, that's great. I'd love to invest more. I'd love to save for the future, but I have these student loans. And I also had student loans. I had about $43,000 in student loans when I graduated. One of my first encounters with the student loan system was actually because my student loan servicer, FedLoan, screwed up my direct debit, right? And I got these notices that said I was delinquent and like, it was like terrible. So what does any good blogger do, right? I wrote about it. And I wrote about my terrible experience with FedLoan and the customer service issues and stuff. And this was 10, 11 years ago at this point in time. So before there was a student loan crisis, like this was very early on. And my goodness, it was one of my first articles that went viral. And I got a lot of comments of people saying, oh my God, me too. And no one's talking about like all the BS that they're putting us through and how it's impossible to deal with them. And I appreciate you sharing my story or your story. And that really opened my eyes that there is a problem here. And so I went down the rabbit hole and really started understanding all the nuances in the student loan world and have really changed my messaging to how to help people get out of this like debacle of student loan debt to get 
into building wealth as early as possible. Because I think we all know, right? The earlier you start, the earlier you save, the easier it is. Um, and so how do we overcome this hurdle of student loans, especially for those that have it? I sent over some questions and, you know, we're going to talk about those questions. But as you were speaking, one of the things I thought about was you're talking about student loans and the content that you have. Do you ever talk about the choice that people are making in terms of going to college and here's this opportunity cost versus like doing trades work or how do you cover the opportunity cost the decision making behind will this make sense for me to borrow money in order to have a career and what about the people who don't finish school yeah i'm so glad you mentioned that because yes after you know dealing with the student loan issues for so many years. I'm like, I want to get my message to the high schoolers and the families making these decisions before they get into this problem. And, you know, sadly, it, it hasn't resonated as much as I would hope, but I'm trying, I go talk to high schools. I do a lot about paying for college and navigating those decisions. And the real framework I use today is an ROI based framework on making that decision. And that's return on investment. Because the fact is, that college costs money. Maybe you agree or disagree that it should cost money, but it does. And there's ways to minimize that cost. Or, I mean, it's like a luxury car. You could go hog wild, right? And so the thing is, though, is we're all going to college. And there was a latest survey that says the one or number, the number one or number two choice of every college student is why they're going to college is to earn more money after graduation. It's like 98% of them choose that as the number one or number two reason for why they go to college. And so when you realize that, like you're making an investment in education to potentially earn more money after graduation, it is an ROI. It's just like any other investment we make. And if you spend too much, well, it could be a negative ROI and you could see a, a poor return on investment. And if you don't spend anything, right, you get free scholarships and grants and however else you pay for school, it could be an amazing investment, right? Because you didn't spend anything and you have a higher income after graduation. And so that's really the framework I like to use for covering, you know, how to navigate that decision. But the fact is, is psychology still plays a huge role in it. And I'll talk to high schoolers. And I think we don't give as many of them credit that a lot of them understand the math. They really do. But there is social pressure and parental pressure and, you know, what their community thinks if they go to a community college or they go to a trades. And I think, I think it's changing because when I went to college, it was, you know, the pendulum was swung full bore. Everyone goes to college or you're a failure. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's coming in a little bit. I mean, it's, you know, still a thing where everyone should go to college, but I think we're kind of seeing that, Hey, you know, maybe there's other options out there. And I personally am of the belief that, you know, probably 60% of high school graduates should go to college and not to say that they, they can't, or they won't, but like, I think that if we really assess everyone on what they want to do, 60% college is probably still the right choice. But then you have the military, you do have trades, vocational schools, entrepreneurship, coding academies, and a lot of other options that can fill in that 40% that might be a very good fit or even better fit than college for those high school graduates. I love that you mentioned that. I uh, used to work with international students for a long time and I'll never forget these students were ranged in age between 17 to 65. So they were coming to the US to learn in English as a second language. 
And one of the students that I'll always remember was a girl from Switzerland. And I'm pretty sure she was 17, 18 at the most. And she was already a nurse. So she had started her nursing training three or about three years before wow. in Switzerland. This is a thing. She knew she wanted to go into nursing. She was an osteopathic nurse, I believe, or um, a, a nurse who works with the elderly and bones. Nice. <laughs> so okay. this, is, this is not my strength, people who are listening. And so she had ha- she like part of her education was getting the training in order to go into this field and she got paid. And so part of her coming over to the US and learning English was also a part of that that experience. And so I think about that student often because she was already making money, she already had this viable career. And when I was going to college, I'm Gen X, by the way, folks, uh, I've mentioned this before, but I want to make sure it's clear. I'm Gen X. I'll never forget um, making my choices to go to college. I was never going to be a nurse. I'm squeamish, but I wanted, I went to college and, and the choice was basically the one that paid the most money that gave that where I earned the most scholarships and that kind of thing. And that school still ended up being extremely, extremely expensive because it was private. And part of what I, I get frustrated about is there's this whole generation of Gen X and older millennials where uh, we didn't have the benefit of, of how tech talks about attaining education. Like we have tech and it's great because you have all of these regular everyday people going on TikTok and Twitter and, you know, Facebook talking about, hey, <laughs> hey, there's a, there's more than one way to do a thing. And it's so normalized. And there's this like lost two generations, I think, that really got slammed with the student loan crisis. And it's frustrating to me, but this is part of the reason why I'm doing this content because I don't want people to have the experience that I've had, that that other folks that I know have had, and just to like really be able to have clarity around the choices that they're making in terms of how it impacts their future. I mean, you nailed it. I think just like every other money topic, we are so influenced by just what we see and our observation and our community. And, you know, I think you're right. The internet, social media, you know, it's one of those things. Like, I think if you ask a kid today, like everyone wants to be a YouTuber or an influencer, it's because they see (laughs) that they're influenced by it. But when we were in high school, I'm an older millennial, so I'll I'll say that too. But like when we were in high school, like tech was the way to do it. Like you needed to go to college, you needed to learn computers. Um, My high school, before I had gotten there, had eliminated auto shop, had eliminated wood shop, had eliminated Uh. all these trade skills, right? And the only thing they had now on campus was computer labs. And so you had to go into that and it was like a required elective, right? To do computers. And nobody was really exposed to anything besides that. And so maybe there was some families that were exposed to things. And I was lucky enough, my my wife's dad was a lineman for the electric company and it was eye-opening. I mean, here's this guy and he made over $200,000 a year working for the power company. And if you don't actually see that, you would not know 
that, hey, you know, the dudes in trucks that go up and fix the electric pools. I mean, those guys, you know, when they're senior and they've been doing it for a while are making 200 plus K a year. And it's like, wow. So I don't have to work in an office. Like I could work outside. I could do this kind of work. Maybe you enjoy that. And that's where it's like, I do think that there is a chunk of our population that would enjoy not being in a cubicle, would enjoy a trade skill or work. And I don't think they realize that there is monetary value and reward in this, these fields, but because they're not exposed to it. And here's the irony is last year, that same high school I went to, reopen the auto shop and the wood shop. So I do think it's telling you something that the pendulum is swinging in a little bit, but you know, I'm excited for that because it's, these are viable careers that can easily pay for a lifestyle that you want, provide for your family and achieve those financial reasons why we all have employment. Um, but you don't necessarily have to go to college for it. Right. One of the things I think about actually, as you, as you talk about this is last year. So I live in a triplex and last year we had to get some plumbing done. And unfortunately that meant that my bathroom had to be torn out because it's triplex. So there's all this shared plumbing and the plumber, master plumber, summer of 2020, uh, actually it was summer of 2020. So it was insane. Uh, No, 2021, excuse me. It's like a void in my memory. And he was doing four different projects in my neighborhood at the same time. So his wife and I are talking and she's like, oh, you should see my house. Like we, you know, we bought a new house. We're working on, they were working on everything because they can do all the reno, right? Mm -hmm. It was a freaking mansion, a mansion (laughs) in Colorado. Like it was legit a mansion and he could not keep up with the work. Like they still can't keep up with, with the work because there aren't enough master plumbers out there so um i i think that in this conversation it's important to point out like you can figure out where the gaps are if you're like look i am not about computer life like that's not me i'm not about office life there are numerous numerous trades that are um there that there is a significant gap and you can find out like you could just look at the data and you'll be making money but i do want to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit and ask you the following question so what have you noticed in the community that you serve about conversations around student loan forgiveness? Like what, what are people saying to you, good, bad, or otherwise? I am, you know, so student loan forgiveness is such a polarizing and divisive issue. And, and that's really the, the, what I'm seeing in my community. So you definitely have people that want to cancel student loans, hundred percent. It should all be wiped out. You have the flip side that says like, no, you borrowed it, you owe it, yada, yada, yada. And then you have this middle ground of like, you know, maybe a hybrid solution, whatnot. But I also find that there is a huge gap in just understanding how it works, how these student loans came about. Um, And they also don't realize that, you know, there's a lot of forgiveness programs out there today. So, you know, about 50% of every student loan borrower right now with no changes to the law or anything qualifies for some type of student loan forgiveness, whether total or partial. And so I think a lot of people just kind of don't realize how it works, especially those without student loans, but shockingly, even a percentage of people with student loans don't realize what's out there in the programs and the, the, th- the tools they have. And so, you know, it's hard. I think it's a very nuanced issue. I think, uh, you know, 
I think people really have strong opinions about it, but I also think that there's a really lack of underlying education about how it works, what the system is. Heck, I mean, people don't even realize who owns their loans or how that even works. So it's really hard. There's a lot of education needed to even get to a point of having a, a discussion around it. If you were working on this policy, what would be like your top three things that you would do um, yeah. in terms of just like, what would you do? I think it's hard because um, I think let's just say first off that student loan forgiveness will probably be part of any solution, but I think it needs to be tied in with fixing the root cause of the problem. How are student loans so toxic that we have to forgive them, but they're not toxic enough that we have to stop lending them, right? So we lend out about $90 billion in student loans a year. So, you know, we're going to forgive the latest proposals as we're recording this are $10,000 for people making up to 125 a year, which is about $300 billion worth of student loans that we might forgive. But on the same token, we're going to give out another 92 billion to 100 billion this year. So in three years, we would have lent out exactly what we forgave. So something doesn't make sense to me in that regard, right? So my real solution is we need to we need to help those that need the assistance, right? So let's let's just look at the math, right? 80% of all student loan borrowers today, they don't really have any issues. They're not in delinquency, they're not in default. Let's not lie, they probably don't want their student loans, um, but that doesn't mean that they can't afford them or they weren't valuable or it's not working for them. Like it's just there. But you do have this segment of 10 to 15% and it couldn't go up to 20% or 18% in some years that are struggling with delinquency and default. And they get in this vicious cycle of trying to get out of it and rehabilitating and it's costly and it's costing them more than their loans, right? Because it's ruining their credit, it's costing them more in insurance and there's a subset there that I think we definitely need to help. And maybe that includes loan forgiveness and other programs, such as one of my favorite ones that's coming is the Fresh Start program. So um, President Biden announced that when student loan repayments do resume, anyone that was in delinquency or default will now be current on their student loans. And honestly, that's I think huge. that's the that's the best relief of this whole pandemic because those are the real marginalized people that are struggling. And that's huge. Um, and then we have to figure out how to be accountable to college costs. And so I will say that undergraduate student loans are also not typically the problem, right? Undergraduate student loans on the federal level have caps on them and the caps are relatively low. And as a result, it does control the borrowing and control the cost. Every single story you see in the media of $500,000 or a million dollars in student loans, every single one of those is graduate school loans or mm -hmm. parent plus loans. And you know why? Those two types of loans don't have caps. And so just like anything else, if you want to control costs, you don't let people borrow it. And so I think there needs to be caps on how much you can borrow. I think we probably need to eliminate like parent plus loans as a, in general. Graduate school is also the profit center of most universities because of these graduate school loans. So we need to look at how do we control costs? And we can, of course, increase funding to higher education, state funding to higher education, maybe more free community college so people transfer. But if you want to focus on the student loan problem in general, it's like we have to cap it. We have to prevent people from borrowing it. And we also have to look at the private market for this stuff as well, because, you know, if we do put caps on the federal marketplace, 
where are people going to go? They're going to go to that private marketplace. And right now, private student loans are a very tiny minority of loans. So there's about $1.7 trillion in total loans, only about $100 billion of it, which, I mean, still a crazy number, but only $100 billion of $1.7 trillion <laughs> is private debt. But that would grow if we cap federal and we don't do anything about private. So that probably means that you know more bankruptcies are going to be allowed, things like that, so that borrowers can get out and maybe the private banks will adjust their risk lending profile on that. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but it's nuanced. There's a lot of moving parts here on both the controlling costs and helping borrowers say, you really have two problems, right? You have the current higher education costs, and then you have how do you help those that are stuck in the student loan system? But then they also overlap so much as well. You brought up something that was so important. And then halfway through what you said, I like, cause so much was so good that I, I'm like, fuck, what was that? You shared so much that literally my mind is a little low key blown. I have so many thoughts. One thing that I, I didn't quite realize was the cap. That was something I, I didn't realize actually was that these loans had a cap and I'm curious because right now we're just like at the point that we're recording this episode Navient will begin contacting its um its customers who are eligible for forgiveness under that lawsuit that they lost. I want to talk a little bit more about these private student loans versus the the public ones. Are you hearing anything from folks who've who've uh taken out private student loans and and just also what are your thoughts about bankruptcy? This was the this was the piece that you brought up that I was like, oh, the ability to even have loans in bankruptcy, like you include them in a bankruptcy settlement. That's the worst phrasing of a question I've ever done, but kind of run with it any way you want. I'm tracking you. So first okay. off, yes, we are hearing things about private loans. I would say in general, most people that opt for private undergraduate loans, I would say it's like 50-50. 50% know what they're doing. They're doing it for a purpose. Because I will also remind everyone that 90% of all undergraduate private loans require a co-signer. Because these banks aren't dumb. They, they know that, hey, these guys have no credit. Like mom and dad is signing for it. And so honestly, about 50% are done because mom and dad are making a financial decision for their child. But 50% of people do get steered into these loans, typically by for-profit colleges, and it's not great. And there are problems there. But I will also say the other thing that a lot of people are talking about today is they're not realizing is student loan refinancing. You know, it's the hot topic. SoFi is one of the biggest student loan refinancing lenders in the country, and they have a huge stadium in LA named after them. Well, mm -hmm. those are private loans. And so over the last decade, right, they've been encouraging people to, hey, refinance, lower your interest rate. And I would say a lot of those were federal loan borrowers that refinanced. Now they have a private loan. And over the last two years with the COVID student loan pause, they're like, whoa, 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 wait, my, my student loan's not paused. Why not? And then they're like, uh, because you have a private loan now. And they're like, no, I don't. And I just refinanced. And they're like, yeah, that means you got rid of your federal and you took on a private. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that. And so that's been very heartbreaking to see. But with that, there's a real myth about bankruptcy. So let's dispel it right now. You're, today, with no changes to the law, you can get your student loans discharged in bankruptcy. However, it's very, very challenging. And here's why. Because 
federal loans have income-driven repayment plans and loan forgiveness programs. So let's just say you take all this debt and you show up on the judge and the judge, you're like, I have $100,000 in, you know, student loans and, you know, you show your car loan and all your other debt, right? And the the judge looks at it and they're like, okay, well, what's your monthly payment? Mm. And they're like, well, I'm not paying it. My my monthly payment for my student loans is $0 a month because I'm on an income-driven repayment plan. So the judge is like, well, then why am I forgiving it and discharging it? You're not paying anything and you're going to get it forgiven on these income-driven repayment plans automatically. Like there's no, there's no reason for the bankruptcy court to, to do anything because the federal law is already taking care of that person. And so that's where a lot of people don't realize that like, you know, it's not necessary potentially, but there are circumstances where people are getting unforgiven. It's typically private loans or like very weird scenarios with parent plus loans combined with like a disability. And maybe they're not disabled enough to get their loans forgiven under total and permanent disability. And so there are a few court cases in that, but for the vast majority of borrowers with with federal loans, it's like, Hey, the judge is going to either discharge your debt or restructure it to get you on a more affordable payment, but income-driven repayment plans already do that. And that's why most borrowers with federal loans aren't going to see any bankruptcy changes or protections or improvements. But if more private loans are coming to the marketplace, we might need to address that fact. What would be some tips that you would give to the student who's just about to start, like they're in the, they're, they're a high school student and they're in the planning stages of going to get their advanced education or training. What would you advise them in terms of thinking about funding that education in the, at this moment in time? Yeah. So paying for college to me is a pie. And there's a lot of slices of the pie. And ideally, you want the student loan slice to be the smallest or not exist. And you want to use all the other slices to pay for college. So the (laughs) other slices can include um, savings, right? Maybe you saved, maybe your parents saved. You also have your earnings, right? You have your own earnings. Maybe parents are going to contribute some out of their earnings as, you know, because it's got four years, right? Maybe they put a hundred bucks a month every month. Who knows, right? Then you also have scholarships and grants. Um, you have work study programs, you have navigating your college choices. So maybe you're going to go to a community college to lower the cost of it. You're going to live at home. You got other options there. And then of course you do have student loans that could be a pie slice to fill in any gaps. And of course it should always be federal loans first and it should be private loans as a very last resort, but 99% of undergraduates should not take a private student loan under any circumstance. Um, And so, you know, there's all these slices. And so I would encourage the students to look at their college costs, focus on minimizing it, and then honestly think about what they want to do in life because it's all about the ROI. And so there's a lot of great data out there now. Like when we, you and I were in college and high school, you know, there wasn't like glass (laughs) door, (laughs) glass door didn't exist. And there was some Uh, general social security stats that said everyone that goes to college makes a million dollars more over their lifetime. You probably heard that stat. It's like very drilled into everything, right? You get a bachelor's degree, you'll earn a million dollars more than someone that doesn't have a bachelor's degree. Well, so then let's, let's break that down a little bit too. So we can do a little math here on a million dollars. And let's just assume that you will make a million dollars more over your lifetime than someone that doesn't go to college. Well, what's the net present value of a million dollars over 40 years, right? Because that's what you're paying for. Ugh. So we need to count, we need to back that up. And you know what the scary fact is, is it's depending on the, in- <laughs> it's not that much. It's about, uh. it's about 80,000 bucks. 
Okay. It's not bad though. Right. So that means like, if you think you're going to make a million bucks more over your lifetime, well, you could probably spend $80,000 today to make that happen. But you start going to a hundred thousand. Oh, it's not worth it. But if you do it at 30, if you only spend 30 and you make a million, hey, you're you're doing really good, right? And so I think it's really important to take this data and see. And now there's all these data by major. There's data by, you know, like what you do. So for example, engineering degrees as a whole, assuming you go into engineering after graduation, you're at like 95% likely to have a positive ROI on your lifetime earnings and your college costs, right? Amazing. If you go into medicine, you that's still, I mean, today going into medicine is still the highest ROI you can get on a college degree. But you know, if you go into art and music and get a degree, on average, this is just the data. Don't don't be mad at me for saying it, but 65% of all art and music majors face a negative ROI on their college degree. Well, so, I mean, actually, our friend Melanie Lockert built her whole platform on that that whole experience she was an art I feel like she was in mm-hmm. the art space and she had a very very expensive student loan and it took her a while to it took a long time for her to pay that off and and that was I mean she definitely experienced that negative ROI and for quite a long time until she was able to pay that off Exactly. And, you know, again, I don't want to just also dismiss people from going into these fields. It's also like buying a car, right? Like, you know, if you can afford it, go out and get that Range Rover. Like, I'm not going to stop you. But like, you know, I don't think you should take on a ton of debt and not be able to afford the monthly payments on that car just because you're trying to get transportation to and from work, right? You could also get a much cheaper car to get the same you know, from point A to point B. (laughs) And so getting to college is kind of the same thing. If you have savings, if mom and dad saved for you and you can go to a private school and you don't really care about the cost because you're not taking a bunch of student loan debt or whatever, like kudos. But at the same time, if that's not you and you're trying to navigate, how do I get from point A, I'm eight, 17 or 18 years old to point B, I'm 22 years old and looking for a job. You might want to do it in the most cost-effective way possible so that you can enjoy your 20s and 30s, not burdened by a bunch of student loans that are going to eat up a bunch of your budget. One of the things that really surprised me in before I decided to do this series is I actually did a freelance project <laughs> for a client. And when I was working on that project, I discovered that most of the predatory loans are actual, actually federal loans paired with for-profit schools. Mm-hmm. What is your observation around students going to these for-profit schools and the lending that occurs? Because a lot of these for-profit schools tend to be issuing certificates and that kind of thing in industries where people are getting master plumbing, you know, uh, certifications, things like that. What's your observation around what is going on with that whole situation? Well, I think it's also crux of the problem, right? So there's a data point and I'm sure you can find this, but you know, you go back to like 1970s, everyone likes to say like, oh, when I went to college in the seventies, it was like $1,200. Well, when you also went to college in 1970, 95% of all colleges were public or nonprofit. Mm. Okay. You fast forward to today and I believe it's 60%. This is numbers, not necessarily enrollment, but the number of schools, because a lot of these certificates are very small schools, like a cosmetology school or something is like 10 people at a time. Right. Mm. But over 60% of the number of schools now are private for-profit schools in this country. And why? 
Yeah. So by sheer number, not necessarily by enrollment, by enrollment, still two thirds to 75% of all students are enrolled in public or nonprofit schools, but the sheer number, like if you want to count like each cosmetology school and barbershop and trade school that are getting financial aid, 60 to 65% of them are private for-profit schools. Why? Well, there's a business opportunity there. Why is there a business opportunity there? Well, because these are technically graduate schools. Graduate schools don't have a cap on lending. They can charge whatever they want. They know their students can pay whatever it is because the federal government will give them these loans. Here we go. We're back to that graduate school problem of no caps on lending. And that's why it's, it should be a crime for some of these you know, and, and sadly, I keep singling out cosmetology and barbershops, but financial aid, the, the financial aid program puts out a list of schools that have the highest default rates. And they put this out every year. Uh, here's the schools. They already know the data. They know where students can't afford to pay their student loan debt. And they put this list out. And like, I want to say 18 of the top 20 schools are all barbershops and cosmetology schools. And these poor students are, they have to get this school because we have state laws that require you, right, to get a little certificate, which you could say is maybe necessary, maybe not. I don't, I'm not really versed in that, but it's required. And so these cosmetology and barbershops take advantage of those students. And they know because they have to have this certificate, they can charge whatever they want. And they know that their students can pay for whatever the cost is. Here we they go. Can get the, they can get the, the loan. Wow. Uh-huh. Right. And so I will tell you that the argument against caps on borrowing is that it could disenfranchise people from school, right? It could just disproportionately affect minority, first generation, college students, things like that. And they're right. But those same people are also being preyed on by these programs because it's like, okay, they don't go to college because they don't go to this cosmetology school that now is also going to screw them. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, they didn't go to college and they didn't get the student loan. But at the same time, we also might've saved the moral hazard issue of like going to this school that they shouldn't have gone to to begin with. So it's a very complex thing and it does have a risk, but I think the benefit of caps outweighs the risk. I'm going to ask you a last question, which is, If you were advising a presidential administration, it could be Biden, it could be whomever is president in 2024, on this topic of student loan forgiveness, what would you tell them to do? I think they need to educate America on these programs more, and they don't. So the fact is, I really, you know, you can argue that Biden's not doing enough, but honestly, Biden's the first president that's even trying to fix the existing system. And the existing system provides for loan forgiveness for 50% of all student loan borrowers as a whole, right? And so you could say that the programs don't work and the you know people that should get it haven't. And you're right, there are a lot of issues. And I love to rag on Navient and Nelnet just like the rest of us. Like they, <laughs> they suck in a lot of ways. I've been there. But yeah. at the same time, those are contractors for the Department of Education. So when is our government gonna start holding our contractors accountable for the results? Like you just said you were doing some freelance work. Like, could you imagine not being held accountable for your work if you were no. like- a contractor, right? We need to hold our contractors accountable to deliver on the promises that we gave our borrowers. Because I do believe that programs like that um, are very beneficial. Like I would like to see public, I would like to see something like public service loan forgiveness expanded to just be every borrower, every loan type. You work in this country for 10 years. I don't care what you do, just go work for 10 years and any remaining balance on your student loan is forgiven, right? Right, right. 
Because why do we have to do, I mean, I get why we say public service jobs, because I think we as a country say we value public service jobs, right? We need teachers, we need firefighters, and that we do. But like, why not just have everyone work for 10 years, and any remaining balance is forgiven? My other argument is part two is who pays for that forgiveness? Mm. I would personally like to see the college that originated the loan pay for that forgiveness. Now, here's why. You're going to suddenly put a ton of accountability on these schools and either they're going to have a positive ROI and these schools aren't going to be paying anything out of pocket because their students are working for 10 years after graduation and things are going well. And there's always going to be a problem. There's always going to be a three to five percent that, you know, life just didn't work out, but they can budget for that. They already have the data. They already know how many of their students default for the last 20 years. It's all public record. You can go find the Excel spreadsheet yourself and you can go, you can actually go to um, college scorecard.org. It's a really cool website. And you can type in your college and you can find the default rates and the student loan repayment rates of your school or any school in this country. So the data is there. They can model for it. They can plan for it, but they should pay if they're overcharging. And the problem is, is you're going to see probably a thousand plus schools close if you did that policy. But on the flip side, what does that tell you about those thousand schools? Right. And so it's very hard. You'll see less enrollment. You'll, you'll see these things. But then again, should we be doing this when these people are just wasting all this money, sending a lot of it to for-profit companies that really isn't adding value to our economy? And so, again, a lot of people will argue that, hey, student loan forgiveness adds to the GDP. It's going to improve everything. It's like, yeah, but also not sending a bunch of our tax dollars to for-profit companies and giving that in other ways could also boost our GDP and you're not going to burden 15, 20 million Americans with things that they can't afford. So bringing in the smoke today, Robert, (laughs) I have to say that I actually on a personal level think that 10 years is too long for the public service program. I actually think it should be lowered to seven to eight years. And I've thought about this for a really long time. I feel like the impact for people would be huge. I actually super love your point that if we shift the accountability to the school, it will change a lot of things in terms of business practices. Mm. And this was a great conversation. I, I love this. I learned things that I didn't know, to be honest. For folks who are looking to learn more about what you do and and the work that you're sharing. Could you share all that where we can find you? Absolutely. So you can find our website at The College Investor. We also have a podcast, The College Investor Audio Show. And if you're on video, we have TikTok and YouTube as well, both The College Investor. Come check us out. We talk a lot about student loan debt, getting out of it. But we also love to talk about investing and making wealth too, not just getting out of debt. And if you're navigating paying for college, we talk a ton about that. So if you got little ones, or if you're getting close yourself, we talk a ton about that stuff as well. I just need to see you do a TikTok about this. <laughs> so I, I can't wait to check out your TikToks. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to find our team on TikTok. You don't necessarily find me on TikTok. But, I was wondering. Uh, but our team crushes it on TikTok. And, um, you know, we, we have some really funny ones. All Actually, our latest one was just about student loan forgiveness. So, yeah. Okay. We'll have to like uh, include that. We'll attach that to the uh, show notes, show notes information for your part of this. So thank you so much. And this was phenomenal. 